you guys. Well, happy end to daylight savings to you all. Uh, for some of you, that meant last night you got an extra hour of sleep. So I expect you to be bright-eyed and engaged this morning. Uh, for some of us, that means you got to have an early morning conversation with confused children about farming. So, God bless America, either way. I'm glad we're all here together. Whatever time it is, whatever day it is, uh, glad we're here together. We started the book of Luke uh, this month last year, and today we've come upon the last chapter. So Luke 24, uh, we're going to take it in three Sundays, and Lord willing, we'll finish Luke in a couple weeks. But today, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along. It'll be on the screen behind me here. I'd like to read our passage, and then we'll, we'll pray for our time. It says, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. That's uh, the women that we talked about last Sunday. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for this story, which informs and changes every other story we've ever heard. Give us faithful hearts this morning to take this in. Pray you would open our eyes to new things, a new appreciation of what you have done. I pray that you would be honored in our time together. Help, help me, Lord, uh, to serve our church well as we look at this text together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So January 2nd, 2006, some of you may remember this. There was an explosion in a coal mine just outside of Sago, West Virginia. Thirteen miners were trapped underground. And the story, as you can imagine, quickly captivated the nation uh, reporters were on scene in the little town within a few hours. Uh, many of the locals gathered in a, a church nearby and, and were praying for the miners and the rescue efforts around the clock. Mining officials were kind of doing all they could, but news was slowed and it was kind of hard to figure out what exactly they could or should do to help the men trapped in the mine. And then sometime around midnight on the second day, some surprising rumors began to trickle out. Supposedly, one miner had died, but the other 12 had survived. A, a local preacher who had been in the church with all those families came running out celebrating. Anderson Cooper on live television on CNN said, we are all in elation here at the news we just heard. And the USA Today printed the headline, Alive, Miners Beat Aughts, the front page of the newspaper. I don't, 
don't know how many of you remember that or know where you were. I know exactly where I was that day. I was in Nashville, Tennessee at a, uh, a national conference called Passion, a gathering of college students. I was a college minister at the time. I had a group of students there. And we had prayed for those minors the first day of the conference. Many times we had prayed for their rescue. Went to bed that night, not knowing what had happened. Woke up that morning. We all left our hotel room, and right outside the door of our room, there were copies of USA Today, that headline right there in front of us as we left the room. Alive, minors beat ought. We were all excited. We were thankful for that news. And we went to that first session that morning at the conference, and there's kind of a bounce in the room, kind of a joy. And the person who got up to lead mentioned it. So let's give God praise for, you know, we want to pray for this one family that's lost their loved one. We want to praise God for rescuing these 12 minors. And we all thank God for answering our prayers. And we had a time of worship. And I remember John Piper got up to preach. He had the USA Today in his hand when he got up on the stage. And he walked up there. And he kind of recounted the story. He said the headline. And he threw it on the stage. He threw it on the ground. And he said, this report is false. It's wrong. They've since come out and said that they got it mixed up. We still don't know exactly how the false information was spread around, but basically one minor survived, 12 had died. 12 families mourning instead of one. Piper threw the newspaper on the ground and said, now I'd like to talk to us all about how the suffering of Christ on the cross helps inform how we think about suffering in our own lives. It's one of the most memorable and impactful sermons I've ever heard in my life. But what it reminded me of is that good news is only as good as it is true. We were all so excited when we got that news that morning and we walked out and we saw that headline on the USA Today. But within a few hours, the bubbles were burst. The joy was gone because we realized the report was inaccurate. Now, you could argue that the most significant piece of news in the history of the world is contained in the passage that we just read. It comes on the lips of someone in dazzling apparel, clearly an angel, who says, He is risen. Now, if that report is accurate, it alters the course of all reality. It changes everything. But it is only good news if it is actually true. So you have to think for a moment, what if that story we just read, a story that many of us have hoped in for the majority of our lives, what if it's not true? And what if it's not real? What if a new report came a few hours later, a few millennia later, saying clearly Jesus did not rise. He was not risen at all. Here is his body. Here is, here is bones. It's not an overstatement to say there would be no Christianity apart from the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it would be difficult to really accept any of his claims if you think about what that would mean. And the, the resurrection is really where God validated the teachings of Jesus and all that he said about himself. Uh, D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, uh, it's, on the, it's in the empty tomb, not on the cross, 
where God gives us his final verdict on Jesus of Nazareth. If we just have the cross, he's crucified like a criminal. It would be pretty hard to go back and care a whole lot about his teaching. It'd be downright foolish to hope in salvation through the name of Jesus of Nazareth if that man's body is in a tomb outside the city of Jerusalem. Even the early followers of Christ admitted this. Paul said to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's pointless. So clearly, this is significant. And thankfully, I think we have very good reason to actually accept this story as accurate. Remember Luke's purpose when we started this gospel a year ago, in the very first verse of chapter 1, he says, I'm writing so that you might be certain about the things you have heard. He's done the research, he's compiled an orderly account, and he's now presenting it in a way that engages skeptics and invites belief. And so the question I want us to take up here, not uh, so much the details of the passage, I want to I look at those briefly, and then I want us to think more specifically about why should we trust what we read here? It's a great story, but it's only as good as it is true. So why should we trust that what we just read actually happened and, and therefore has significance in our own life? So when you look at the passage, you see first the ladies there, verses 1 through 4. Uh, these are the women uh, who followed Joseph uh, to the tomb we learned about last week. They went home to prepare some spices. Luke names them down in verse 10. We've got Mary Magdalene, Salome, Mary, the mother of James, and then some other unnamed women. Uh, we know that they knew where Jesus was buried because they had followed Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea uh, on Friday night. We know that they went home to prepare spices. We know that Saturday they rested for the Sabbath. And then it seems on Sunday... As early as possible, they set out for the tomb. It was early dawn. And they're planning to use their spices on a corpse. It's worth pausing to note that. They were not going anticipating meeting the risen Lord. They were going with spices to do the best they could for their deceased leader and teacher. And they began to run into some surprises. Uh, there are at least three there. Uh, first, they get there and the tomb is rolled away. So Mark tells us on the way, they're kind of talking over, what are we going to do about that stone rolled over in front of the tomb? They get there and the stone has been rolled away. Maybe thinking something is not right. Then they come into the tomb, they look inside and there's no body. And we learn from the text as you look at the various gospels, their first thought is someone has taken the body. So they don't jump to the conclusion of he is risen, hallelujah, he's risen today, they go, oh no, someone's taking his body. This, this whole situation has gone from very bad to even worse. Now his body has been stolen. And then they see these two angels, and they're perplexed. Again, they don't, they don't think, oh, there are the angels. They're the ones that are supposed to announce the resurrection. They're absolutely befuddled. They have no idea what is going on. They fall to the ground in fear. Uh, Matthew tells us there were Roman guards outside. They fell in fear as well, just like any one of us would do if we encountered angels, particularly in a context where we're expecting to be around a dead body. So they're terrified and they're confused. 
And then the angels say those fateful words, one in particular likely says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is risen. If those words are true, they're probably the most important words ever spoken. Your personal opinion of Jesus has to begin and end with your assessment of that truth claim right there. Tim Keller puts it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, you really have to accept all that he said. Here is a guy who claimed to be God, claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be dying on behalf of the sins of the world, claimed that the Father would vindicate him by raising him from the dead three days later. And if that actually happened, how in the world do you dismiss all the other things he said? You have to go back and read those statements through the lens of someone who was right about God's ability to raise him from the dead. Now, Keller's honest. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? It does not even matter. So the angels, in a similar way, they say, this is what he told you would happen. And, and they reference, in general, several statements Jesus made. We saw it, especially in Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what Jesus himself told his followers. We don't know exactly what they understood about that sentence at the time. From our vantage point, it seems really clear, but we're standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years of interpreting this moment of perplexity that the ladies are experiencing right now in the midst of that empty tomb. For the disciples that day back in Luke 9, and even for these disciples right here in this moment, they're still confused. I mean, it's, it's still hard to put all this together. So the angels reference three things that are going to have to happen. Or, I'm sorry, Jesus referenced three things that, was, that were going to have to happen to him. He would be rejected, he would be killed, and then he would be raised. The sense is that the first two, while at the hands of men, uh, clearly the third is by the hand of God. He would be raised from the dead, and clearly God's in control of the whole thing. So the women are taking all this in, and they remember his words, and then they go and get some help. They go to the, the other disciples. They think, we need to tell some other people about this. And even the disciples do not believe them at first, do they? I mean, again, you don't, you don't see the disciples, they don't interrupt the disciples' prayer for the resurrection. They don't interrupt the disciples having a Bible study over Luke 9.22 you know, where Peter's going, come on, guys, don't lose heart. Remember, he said on the third day that they're, they're completely perplexed as well. They're surprised. And they don't even seem to buy the lady's story. I don't think there's outright rejection of Jesus in this moment, but there's certainly disbelief. I mean, it's this sense of, is this even possible? Are you sure that's what you saw? Like, I think any one of us would be in the moment. So I think what Luke's doing here is he's kind of relating to his readers. He's certainly telling the story as it happened, but I think he's also relating to those of us that would read this today and, and maybe hear this story and go, I don't know. And Luke's saying, look, I know it's hard for you to believe. That's understandable. Even his own disciples were unsure at first. But what we want to think about today is there are actually very good reasons for us to accept this testimony as true. And there are a lot of different ways we could go about this. Um, 
lots of scholars and Christian apologists have done a lot of work in trying to help the church think about these things. Uh, I, I just want to highlight five things that I've found particularly helpful uh, in, in trying to make sense as to why it makes sense to believe that this news is true. Okay, so just, just five reasons why I think it makes sense to believe this news is true. This comes from a guy named Gary Habermas. He's a, a Christian apologist, and he's developed something he calls the minimal facts approach. Uh, he spent his life researching what Christian scholars, Jewish scholars, non-Christian scholars have said and written about the resurrection. And what he has attempted to do is sort of aggregate several key ideas that most of those people agree on. We're never going to have unanimity about anything historically. I mean, you dig around, you'll always find some outlier that says, oh, that didn't really happen. You know, we didn't really land on the moon. This wasn't really the case here. We, how do we really know this happened? I mean, we, we experience that today, right? Uh, we all lived through the days after the 2016 election, <laughs> which seems to have extended for a full year now. Um, we're all still in that moment in some way. Um, but the reality is there's never going to be total unanimity. But Habermas says, what are the things that Christian scholars and even non-Christian scholars seem to mostly accept? What are the details of the story that they mostly accept? And he's put these in several different lists. I find these five to be the most compelling. So I want to I give you these and, and try to unpack each one of them just a little bit to get our minds around this. So number one, most scholars... Christian and non-Christian scholars accept as fact that Jesus of Nazareth was killed by crucifixion. Now, that's not a theological claim. I'm not saying that non-Christian scholars tend to think he died for their sins. I'm saying they're thinking that some guy near Jerusalem named Jesus was crucified by the Romans around this time. We've got testimony in all four Gospels, of course, but we've got a Roman historian writing very near to the event itself, referencing it. We've got Jewish historians who would no doubt have reason to not want this information to be put in print, referencing it. Uh, we've, we've got people that have kind of tried to pick it apart for years and saying things like, well, maybe he just kind of swooned on the cross and he sort of passed out and they thought he was dead and then they got him back to the tomb and then he was revived and you know he wasn't actually dead. The, the problem with that kind of thinking is we have no person on record in any uh, part of ancient history who survived the Roman cross. It was a very effective killing machine. So this is a guy named John Dominic Crossan. John Dominic Crossan is a uh, New Testament scholar. Um, to call him a non-Christian would be a, a bit soft. He's, he's more anti-Christian in the sense of has made a career out of picking apart these claims. He doesn't buy this whole story, but here's what he says about this point. He says that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. This is not a guy who's walking with the Lord. This is just a guy who's looked at the stories. He's detailed the study for years, and he says that this happened as sure as anything historical can ever be. So the first fact that I think is fair to accept as fact is that Jesus was killed by crucifixion. The second one is that the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. They believe that's what happened. The gospel accounts mention this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Paul gives this list of all these Peter, Peter, uh, all these people, Peter, the 12, uh, some 500 brothers, and he references to the church of Corinth. Many of them are still alive today. James and even Paul himself, all of whom Jesus appeared to. You've got the sermons in Acts where these people continually reference Jesus as risen from the dead. And then, of course, you've got their willingness to endure persecution. As we think about our persecution, persecuted brothers and sisters around the world today, we see these Christians in the first, especially first couple centuries of the church, and especially in these first decades, who walked with this guy, knew this guy, and watched him die, and are then willing to die on behalf of the claim that he was raised from the dead. It's hard to buy the idea that they would have been talked into that sort of thing if it was some sort of hallucination. If somehow 500 people hallucinated the same image at the same time. So this is another liberal scholar. I forgot to write down his name, but I just titled him liberal scholar in my notes. (laughs) Just trust me, this isn't some Baptist hiding somewhere. Um, Here's what he said. He said, I don't know what they saw, but I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. Right? So again, he's not saying, you know, I believe in the resurrected Lord. He's just saying, look, that's a lot of people and they saw something. We can't just dismiss them as if it was a couple of grieving women who maybe let their emotions overwhelm them in the moment. We'll return to those grieving women in a moment. But wouldn't it be easy to just dismiss it if we just had a couple of really sad people? But we've got this long list of people. So even this liberal scholar says they saw something. Number three, there's the conversion and subsequent ministry of Paul. So uh, we have the New Testament that tells us all about Paul's conversion, all about his ministry, all about how he went from uh, murderer to missionary. We also have at least six ancient sources outside of the New Testament, non-Christian sources, who reference Paul as a guy who's willing to die and willing to suffer on behalf of this new Christian movement. So Mike Lacona, he is a Baptist guy. He's an apologist. He says, his radical transformation from persecutor to missionary really demands an explanation. How do you go from hating these people and wanting to squelch what they're doing to giving your life for the cause? Well, Paul tells us what happened. The The resurrected Lord appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me and persecuting my people? So we've got the conversion of Paul. And then there's a conversion of James. There's pretty good evidence when you look through the New Testament that James was not a disciple during the life of Jesus. He was a half-brother of Jesus. And in the Gospels, there's reference made to the fact that none of his brothers accept him as Messiah. None of them are his followers. And so uh, James, it appears, at Jesus' death, sees his half-brother in some light other than Messiah. Right? He's not a follower at his death. And yet in the book of Acts, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. So how do you go from leading the movement in Jerusalem from a place where you used to deny that he was the Messiah? Again, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James personally. And William Lane Craig, a Christian apologist, puts it this way. I think this is helpful. He says, well, what would it take you to convince you that your brother is the Lord? (laughs) Do you think it might take 
his re- resurrected appearance. Right? If your brother just began to teach himself as the Messiah, that might be a little hard to buy as the guy who grew up next to him. Maybe so. But what if you watched him die and then he appeared to you in his resurrected form? So there's the conversion of James the conversion of Paul, the fact that the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them, the fact that Jesus was indeed killed by crucifixion, and then fifthly is the whole idea that the tomb was empty. Habermas estimates that about 75% of all scholars admit that the tomb was empty. Now they may have theories as to where the body was instead of the tomb, but they admit that it was empty. And we can even see this in the New Testament because in one of the Gospels it references how this rumor had begun to spread that someone had taken the body. Now how does a rumor like that start unless that tomb is empty, right? And it's spreading in Jerusalem. If I'm in Jerusalem and somebody tells me the body has been taken, you know what you do? You go check it out. These ladies are claiming the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty, It's like public property at this point. I mean, go check it out. It seems like the tomb was genuinely empty. We even have enemies of the cause kind of admitting as much as they come up with false narratives to make sense of why the body's not there. And then, of course, we have the ladies themselves. Uh, These women, these faithful women, Mary, Mary, Salome, and the others, um, we appreciate their testimony today, but as many of you know, their testimony would not have been valid in a court of law in, first century, in the first century Roman world. So if you're the disciples and you took his body and you're now going to fabricate a story that he has resurrected and some angels appeared to a couple of your people and told you he had risen from the dead, you want to get your best witnesses to happen to see that. So these grieving women is not where you would start if you were planning that conspiracy. Are you following me? So the the female factor there is another reason why I think it makes sense to believe that the tomb is empty. So when you pull all that stuff together, here's my honest assessment of it. I think it, it makes actual sense to conclude that the disciples believed in the resurrection because they were actually telling the truth. Because it actually happened. Think about Sago, West Virginia again, that story about the coal miners at the beginning. As much as that story illustrates how easily inaccurate news can spread, it also shows us how simple it is to discredit a false miracle. Now, within a few hours, CNN had corrected its story. I think they were the first one to go back and say, we're sorry, we were wrong in a few hours. The problem was the newspapers had been printed and the news had spread rapidly and so there were many people who were confused and even deceived that morning. But do you want to know something? As sad as it is to reflect on, no one believes that story today. No one believes that 12 miners survived that devastation today. It was easy to disprove that supposed miracle. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we to do with a similar rumor of a man who was given to the earth and then who seems to have made a miraculous escape 
And yet the story has held up for 2,000 years. And something like the Sago mine disaster was disproven in a few hours. But I want to say to you today, I think you have to do something. I don't think Jesus left us the option to just shrug our shoulders at this and maintain neutrality. I mean, C.S. Lewis probably put this as well as anyone. He said, Jesus left us with just a couple of options. With the claims he made, he was either a liar who deceived his followers into thinking that he was the Messiah, thinking he was the Son of God, and then convincing them to go about this whole conspiracy to hide his body and fool the world. There's just too much stuff that happened around this to just pretend like it didn't happen at all. So maybe he was one of the most horrible people in the history of the world, an absolute liar who has deceived millions. Maybe. Maybe he was an absolute lunatic. Maybe he was absolutely crazy. And he began uh, to think himself God and began to tell others that he was God. And somehow that uh, lunacy confused and even deceived some people into helping hide his body and, and fabricate all this and keep the story up for all this time. The thing that's kind of hard to believe about this, Tim Keller points this out, is he says, look, we've got people all throughout human history that have claimed to be God. And we've pretty quickly declared them to be crazy, and we usually end up locking them up, right? Then we've got people throughout human history that have had the leadership ability to inspire the masses to follow their agenda. We can think of good examples of that. We can think of bad examples of that. But we've seen lots of leaders sort of rise to the occasion and lead movements. Jesus of Nazareth, Keller says, is the only person in human history that actually fits in both of those categories. You see, none of the leaders who inspire the masses claim to be God, and none of the crazy people who claim to be God tend to attract followers. And yet Jesus sits in both categories, which makes it hard to imagine that he is absolutely crazy. And so C.S. Lewis says that leaves us one option. He is either a liar, he is either a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He is who he claimed to be. Peter heard this story, and I think he was somewhere in the middle of all that in this moment. We don't know exactly when Peter began to believe the resurrection was true, but it says he rose, he ran to the tomb, he stooped, he looked in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. I'm sure in his mind he's thinking, if they stole the body, why would they leave his grave clothes? Wouldn't you just take the whole body, clothes and all? That doesn't really make sense. And it says Peter went home marveling at what happened. The story seems to lack a concrete ending, as if Luke invites us to supply our own. It's as if Luke is putting all this before us and saying, now what are you going to do with this? Here are the facts. Here's the orderly account I've put together. Now how are you going to respond? For those of us who are followers of Christ, you may have responded years ago, that you believe the story, you believe that he is resurrected from the dead, you believe the tomb is empty because God himself, the Father, raised the Son in vindication of his holiness as a part of his plan to save you and his people from their sins. The question I'd have for us as believers is, are we living like we actually follow a risen Lord? 
this thought's been in my mind the, the last couple of days I've just been thinking about this. If God raised Jesus from the dead, do I really believe that there is nothing he cannot do? I know I'd say that, but do I really believe that? I mean, if he raised Jesus from the dead, could he restore the health of the person whom I am praying for right now? If he raised Jesus from the dead, could he rebuild a broken marriage that seems to be far past hope? If he raised Jesus from the dead, could he soften the hard heart of my friends who don't know him, who have resisted this message for years, and who seem unwilling to hear it ever again? If he really raised Jesus from the dead, could he, the father who, gave, who raised his son from the dead, put his spirit in me and give me power to conquer any sin in my life? So that I never, as a Christian, say, I cannot. If he really raised Jesus from the dead, what does that mean for this church? Some of you guys have been here through our journey. Some of you are, are new uh, to it. Uh, we've had some moments as a community where it uh, has been questioned whether or not we would survive. I mean, we were on life support of sorts. Um, I think in a real way, the Lord has, has raised us. We're, we're not so much asking the question anymore of are we going to keep going, but I think as a church, we have to begin asking the question, how are we going to keep going? And what's it going to look like? Are, are we just going to stay together? Are we just going to keep meeting? Is that enough for the resurrected king? Or could he be doing something far beyond anything any of us could ever ask or imagine? So as we go to communion now, I just want to invite you to consider those ideas. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? And if so, do you live in light of that belief? Or are there areas of your life that seem to be submitted to a dead king or a corpse? The ladies going up to that tomb were just carrying spices to anoint a corpse. May we not be caught just thinking of God in small terms as if He is not capable of the things far beyond anything we could ever dream. We're going to take communion after I pray, as we do every Sunday here. And if you're a follower of Christ, if you... If you hope in that story and you hope in the resurrected King, we want to invite you to enjoy communion with us. It's at the back of the room. Uh, we'll, we'll start that in just a moment after I pray. You take the, the bread and dip it in the juice and take that on your own. Uh, if, if you're not a follower of Christ, if, if you're with us this morning as a guest and you just wouldn't identify as a Christian, uh, I, I'm really glad you're here. I've, I've prayed specifically for you this week. I hope that doesn't freak you out. Uh, but I'll just be honest, I've prayed specifically for you this week. And I just, I just want to ask you to, to sit and ponder all of those different things we discussed. And ask yourself the question, what am I going to do with that? What am I going to do with this empty tomb? We'd ask you not to participate in communion because it is a family meal for those who are following the risen Lord. But 
uh, we, we just want to invite you to spend some time reflecting on that. And if you have any questions, if you'd like to talk more about it, I would love to discuss it further with you after the service. Um, I'll be available in the back and it would really take great joy in talking to you more about it. So let me pray for us and then we'll go to communion. Lord, thank you for your kindness, Lord. Thank you for your power. Father, thank you for raising your son from the grave. We thank you for an empty tomb. And we pray that we would live our lives in light of that empty tomb. Help us to walk out of here in faith. Faith in our risen King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.